Ephesian church in chapter 6 verses 10 through 20 finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his power put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil for your struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, Stand, therefore, and fasten the belt of truth around your waist. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. As shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the spirit at all times in every prayer and supplication and to that end keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. And pray also for me so that when I speak a message may be given to me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly as I must speak. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the word of the Lord. I uh, remember when my mom called me and told me that if I wanted to see my grandfather, I'd better hop on a plane and get myself to Harlingen, Texas, because it wasn't going to be long. And it was about uh, 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning, December of 2003. And under ordinary circumstances, I would call somebody in the leadership and tell them that I needed to hop on a plane, and, and could they help me find somebody to fill in the pulpit on such short notice? But the problem was I, was, I was having a very difficult time at the church. There was some speculation about just how long I would last as things appeared to be deteriorating. So when my mom called, I said, look, I, I got to go preach this morning. I'll get on a flight as soon as I can after church. And she said, well, can't you come now? 
And I said, guilt establishing a beachhead in my heart, I, I really can't. It's too close to service, and I, I, I can't really afford the blowback that I know will be coming my way if I don't show up this morning. And through tears, she said, but it's your grandpa. I mean, why would they be mad at you for wanting to see him before he dies? And I didn't really have a good answer for her. I didn't want to tell her that even with one of the most important people in my life dying, I wasn't sure that my job would still be here when I got back. So I went to the church and stumbled through the service, and then I took off to the airport to hop on a flight to say goodbye to my grandfather. He had colon cancer. And even though he was a tough guy, a, a World War II Marine, he was suffering terribly. So on the whole, on the way, the whole way to Harlingen, I, I was stressed about my grandfather, stressed about my job, about how I was going to make it through all of this. And after we landed, I was walking through the concourse towards uh, the arrivals. And I saw my mom and my Uncle Juan coming up to me from a distance. And I could see that my mom was crying, which didn't really surprise me under the circumstances. But when she reached me, she said, your, your grandpa died about an hour ago. Uh, he went peacefully, thank the good Lord. It was somebody that I desperately wanted to see but I still found a way to let myself get in the way of me not being there <laughs> for my family when it mattered most but if I could go back and do it all over again I, I would have just called somebody and told them I, I couldn't be there for church that morning I didn't show up for my grandpa, for my grandma, for my mom, for my Uncle Juan, some of the most important people in my life when they needed me most. So think about how easy it is then to fail to show up for people that nobody much cares about. <laughs> but I mean, we understand that. We, that's not a new thing, is it? Those who call themselves by God's name have often failed to show up for the people everybody else feels comfortable leaving behind. And it's not just the travails of the LGBTQ community, the, the, the oppression of our black and brown siblings, our immigrant neighbors, the elderly warehoused and institutions, the, the countless kids who will needlessly be exposed to COVID. Those who call themselves children of God have, have often stayed deafeningly silent in the face of the suffering, the oppression, and the neglect of our neighbors, whom God also calls children. During the 75-plus years that constitute the abomination of lynching in this country, Black people looked around for support from white Christians only to find that there was no one there. Late 19th, early 20th century African-American anti-lynching activist Ida B. Wells, outraged by um, 
the crusades of white evangelist Dwight Moody, ones he'd been holding all over the South, said, our American Christians are too busy saving the souls of white Christians from burning hell in hellfire to save the lives of the black ones in the present were burning in fires kindled by white Christians. As theologian James Cone observed, for Ida B. Wells, Christian identity had to be validated by opposing mob violence against a powerless people. And no amount of theological sophistry could convince her otherwise. See, according to Ida B. Wells, if the test is our willingness to lend our voices to those who are being oppressed, who are being mistreated, who are being exploited and forgotten, if that's the test of true Christianity, then too often we failed. But I mean, you don't even have to go back that far, right? I mean, there are still close to 500 children who've been ripped from their arms, from the arms of their parents, and who are separated from them even yet. Those parents and children waited for what I'm sure must have felt like an eternity for somebody who would acknowledge that they're also children of God. Someone who would be willing to say no to the powers and principalities. Because too often they've looked around and there's been no one there. So this is the same charge, interestingly enough, that is laid at the feet of the children of Israel as they languished in exile in Babylon all the way back in the 6th century BCE. Isaiah writes in chapter 59, Good judgment is turned back, and justice stands at a distance. For truth stumbles in the public square, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and whoever turns from evil is despoiled. The Lord saw it, and it displeased God that there was no justice. And God saw that there was no one, and was appalled that there was no one to intervene. Now the children of Israel have committed grave sins especially by the powerful against the weak. And Isaiah continues by saying, Your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one brings suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas and they speak lies, conceiving mischief and begetting iniquity. And the way of peace they do not know. And there is no justice in their paths. Their roads have been made crooked, and no one wants to walk in them who knows peace. And therefore, good judgment is far from us, and justice does not reach us. We wait for light, and lo, <laughs> there is darkness. And for brightness, but we walk in gloom. Now, that's not an especially pleasant picture, right? I mean, God has given responsibility to the powerful to protect the weak. And they've not only not protected the weak, they've preyed on them. 
their hands dipped to the elbows in the blood of the innocent. And so God is disgusted. And Isaiah tells us the Lord saw it and it displeased God that there was no justice. God saw that there was no one and was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So what does God do? Well, <laughs> God takes matters into God's own hands. Because there is no justice, because the people have remained silent in the face of injustice, Isaiah says that God put on tzedek, which is Hebrew, meaning justice. God put on justice like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on God's head. God put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped God's self in fury as a mantle. There's no justice to be found among the leaders of the people, and so God stands alone. <laughs> there was no one. Now, this far in, you may be asking yourself, I thought this was a sermon about Ephesians, and why, why are you spending so much time on Isaiah? See, that's what I love about you all. Yeah? You're always one step ahead of me. This passage from the letter to the saints in Ephesus is a famous one, right? I mean, so many people have heard it. Uh, I, growing up, I must have heard dozens of sermons on this passage. Put on the whole armor of God. And why was I encouraged to put on this protective covering of the celestial carapace? Well, to guard against the evil one, of course. For our struggle is not against enemies of flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. <laughs> it's about spiritual welfare, man. I mean, I remember when I was young reading a Christian novel, which is generally speaking, in my experience, an unfortunate literary genre. And it was entitled This Present Darkness. It was about a, a, a literal war between heaven and the spiritual forces of evil. Now, the protagonist was able to overcome the deadly powers of Satan and Satan's liberal humanist minions by praying and by calling upon the angels to keep people safe from falling into sin. Now, not all sin, mind you, <laughs> but... You know, individual sin, stuff like swearing and drinking and adultery and backsliding and apostasy, but that, that kind of sin. So I was taught that putting on the whole armor of God had to do with protecting my individual soul against the flaming arrows of the evil one. Belt of truth, shield of faith, sword of spirit, and that kind of stuff. It was all about keeping me safe from the temptations of the devil. And this passage from Ephesians, I mean, all these sort of cool spiritual warfare gadgets, some are like my own personal ecclesiastical bat cave, so I could fight the forces of evil and ultimately prevail. It was kind of a Marvel, DC Comics vision of spirituality in which I, 
was the hero. But you see, the problem with that interpretation of this passage is that it, it fails to take something very important into account. Now, the translators of the New Revised Standard Version didn't do us any favors because the passage is explicitly addressed to Adolfoy, which was the term of address that we used in the conservative churches of my childhood, brethren. So the beginning of the passage should be read, updated for inclusion. Finally, my siblings, be strong in the Lord. It's written to a group, right? And furthermore, the verbs are almost entirely in the second person plural, meaning that the passage sounds like it should have been written in the American South. Y'all put on the whole armor of God so that y'all may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. In other words, this is a passage that is addressed to the community, not to individual Christian caped crusaders. The armor is to be taken up by the entire community. Now, you might be tempted to say, well, okay, fine. So it's not about how I can become a holy crime fighter, a, a sort of beatified Batman. But, I mean, what is all that stuff about Isaiah then? See, y'all won't let me get away with anything. But here's the thing. The reason I bring up the Isaiah vision of an outraged God pursuing justice alone is because there was no one else to do it. The reason I bring it up is because that's the passage that the author of Ephesians is thinking about as he's writing. Now, for the sake of discussion, let's just say that the author is Paul. Paul uses the same exact imagery used by Isaiah, the breastplate of justice and the helmet of salvation. And so if Paul's channeling Isaiah here, let's just remind ourselves what the breastplate of justice and the helmet of salvation actually refer to. In Isaiah, God dons the armor in order to set things right. Because the people that God left in charge had failed to pursue justice. In the midst of tyranny and, and, and oppression, God looked around and there was no one. And so God puts on the holy armor all by God's self. And having God put on the armor alone is a grave error that Paul's looking to remedy in this passage from Ephesians. In other words, there was a time when God stood alone and was seeking justice for the weak and the powerless. But Paul says that the community of the faithful, because of the example of Jesus, needs to take its place alongside God to put on the same armor that God put on all those years earlier in Israel. Not, not, not so that we can fight our individual demons so much, but so that justice will no longer stand at a distance and truth will no longer stumble in the public square. Paul says that we're part of the divine justice league <laughs> because justice is pre precisely what God wants but what is too often nowhere to be found. 
When Paul says that our struggle isn't against the, the enemies of flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, he's not just talking about some sort of otherworldly weirdness. The, the, the cosmic powers of this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, aren't some kind of super demon army, some version of Indiana Jones and the flaming arrows of the evil one. And he's not talking about our own personal demons for which we need a kind of a mystical Batmobile and sanctified Kevlar. He's talking about the powers and principalities that institutionalize injustice and subjugation right here and right now. The kind of powers and principalities that let LGBTQ people die alone with no one to speak their names. The kind of spiritual forces of evil that have systematically terrorized African Americans for 400 years. The cosmic powers of this present darkness that lock immigrant children not in spiritual prisons tended by celestial guards, but in actual cages tended by agents of Caesar. Now, how do I know that? Well, apart from the striking reference to God's donning of the same breastplate of righteousness and helmet of salvation in Isaiah 59, I know that because those cosmic powers have apparently also imprisoned Paul. I mean, he reminds us in the last verse in this passage that he's writing while in chains. Not some kind of spiritual chains, not some kind of personal prison of his own sinfulness, but actual this worldly iron Roman military issue chains. In other words, Paul's immediate concerns are, well, <laughs> immediate. He's acutely aware of the spiritual battle of the powerful against the powerless because the powerful have wrapped him in actual chains. He also knows that the community of the faithful in Ephesus, to whom he's writing, has little power that it derives from itself against the sometimes hostile Roman state. But, notwithstanding the community's marginalized status, Paul says they've been given the tools to resist the cosmic powers that imprison the vulnerable, and set the voiceless, the spiritual forces of evil that establish unjust systems and prey upon the defenseless. Moreover, those who follow Jesus have not been only given the breastplate of justice and righteousness or, uh, and helmet of salvation to oppose injustice. They've also been called to stand next to God in the battle for the dignity and protection of all those people who have been ignored, who have been put under the thumb of the people in charge. Ida B. Wells and the population of our neighbors who are black and brown. Those children who are still separated from their parents. 
for all the children who've been abused by the clergy and those who can't find adequate health care or food or housing, for all those who feel powerless and forgotten and alone. See, when God looks at a world filled with unjust systems, when those who've been crushed under the boot of oppression behold the machinery of subjugation, they shouldn't see no one. They should see us standing there too. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.